Welcome to session number nine. We've got uh, 12 totally in the series. And uh, I'll get that. Hold on just a minute. <laughs> Parables. Uh, a comparison of earthly and heavenly things, an earthly story, heavenly meaning. But really what we've tried to communicate through this session is, do you have ears to hear? Constantly in the parables, he brings up the idea that why does he speak in parables? Because some people will have ears to hear and some people will not. It is indeed a mystery. So um, I said last week, and I'll repeat again as we get into this uh, parable of Lazarus and the rich man. Now we're moving into the final months of Jesus' ministry. The parables are taking on a little different flavor than the parable of the sower, which was in the very beginning of his ministry. Now we're getting into, uh, it just changes a little bit. Uh, he knows the cross is getting near. So let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I pray tonight we would indeed have ears to hear. And that has to come from you. So Lord, give us ears to hear, open our minds to understand the scriptures so that every parable tonight that we read, we will understand um, fully the message that you intended to touch our hearts. In Jesus' name, I pray, amen. Okay, Lazarus and the rich man. I really don't think this one is a parable. <laughs> so some of you are going to think, well, why is it in the list of parables? And let me, let me say why. Um, I lean more toward, and I'm not going to get into a debate about it. If you disagree, that's fine. Um, I lean more toward this is a true story. And I'll tell you why, because Jesus uses real names. And uh, Jesus doesn't use real names in parables except this one. So it's kind of interesting. And whether it is or whether it isn't doesn't change what we're going to talk about tonight. But it is interesting that is this a parable, just a story that reveals heavenly issues, or is it a real people? And the reason he uses Lazarus and Abraham, real people in this story. All of the other stories we've told, they don't have real people's names. Interesting. So either way, I want to cover it in this series because it's such a powerful and clear teaching of Jesus. Many of Jesus' parables begin with what? The kingdom of heaven is like, right? That's how a lot of them start. And the kingdom of heaven is like. This one reveals paradise. This is the story from the one who knows the truth about the afterlife. He knows what happens when you stop breathing. He knows what happens the moment that your mind, that the breath of life exits your body and if you've been around very long, you've watched that happen to somebody. I have watched that happen to a lot of people in my lifetime. I have watched them on the bed go, and it's gone. That's it. That body becomes a corpse. What happens in that moment? If Jesus is on the cross, and he's got a thief on both sides, and one of them, he says, today you will be with me in paradise. Today... When that breath goes out of you, we're going to meet somewhere. Now let that sink in. So that's why I'm going to use the word paradise. It's the, the interaction after the breath leaves the body. What happens? 
This is the story. What I'm about to read is the story of the, from the one who actually knows. Doesn't have, an, just doesn't have to guess. He looks at that guy and says, today, I assure you, today you're going to be with me in paradise. And that guy stopped breathing in just a little while. And Jesus stopped breathing in just a little while. Luke 16, 19. I'm going to tell you up front, this, this, is, um, this is a heavy issue. Jesus said there was a certain rich man who was splendidly clothed in purple and fine linen and who lived each day in luxury. At his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus who was covered with sores. And as Lazarus lay there longing for scraps from the rich man's table, the dogs would come and lick Lazarus's sores. I want you to notice the contrast between these two men. One is in luxury and the other is in absolute poverty. These two men couldn't be any more different from each other, but they are traveling through life together. And in Jesus's application, they are sharing the same story. Okay? There's a scene that they share the same story. Jesus and the two thieves on the cross. In that scene, they share the same story, right? They're in the same story. The rich man seems to have everything, and Lazarus was left to beg for his food. The rich man had servants to care for him, and Lazarus had dogs that came and licked his soap and sores. This is quite a contrast. Two different people, but they are in the same story called life. And I want you to look at it like this. These two guys, whether or not they know it or not, are walking side by side through the same story from God's perspective. Side by side. Maybe they didn't pay much attention to each other. But from God's perspective, they are walking side by side through the same story. God, the creator, had breathed the breath of life into these two men, and these two men are living souls. So here comes the question. We are all doing life together right now. Even though we have different backgrounds, we have different stories, all of us are doing life together. The big question, here it comes, the big question is what happens after we finish doing life? This parable is going to deal specifically with this. What happens, I mentioned earlier, when the breath of life comes out of this body, what's going to happen after we finish doing life? What happens in the after life? So if I looked at the room today and said, do you believe in an afterlife? I would find it hard to believe that you're here tonight if you didn't. But maybe... You came because somebody made you. I don't know. I'm looking at your faces right now. They are both traveling. This rich man and Lazarus, they are both traveling together on planet Earth as it rotates around the sun, experiencing this thing called life. They are both experiencing life and years, even though their experiences are quite different. But now they will both experience death. And, and I can tell you that 100% of people will experience death before 120 years. Now, there might somebody say, well, I knew a guy that lived to be 130. Okay. Okay, you're going to die anyway. I don't know what the day is. You're going to die. I can tell you this truth today. In the midst of all the craziness of this world that we live in, death will kill 
you 100% of the time. Think about that. Death will kill you 100% of the time. People are dying from death every day. People are dying from death every day. You don't have to have some other reason. You're dying from death. You ever hear them say, back in my day, they used to say, well, she died from natural causes. I'll say, what was that natural cause? Death. They die from that. Okay, it's true. The, so what do we do with that? The resurrection of the dead through Jesus Christ our Lord will overcome death 100% of the time. Is this good news? If 100% of people are going to die, and you could believe that 100% of the people can live through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, then you've just undone death. You've just cured death. So before I read this next verse, I want to tell you it begins with a powerful word called finally. Do you believe in finally? I asked you a moment ago, do you believe in the afterlife? Well, do you believe in finally? Most people, my experience, even church people, want to ignore the word finally. I don't like the word either. The word finally refers to the end of this life on earth. It happens to everyone. Finally happens to everyone on earth. Whether you're rich or poor, male or female, young or old, it doesn't matter. In your future, barring the return of Christ, barring the return of Christ, you're going to have a moment that's called finally. Finally. There'll be a period, not a comma. There's a period. Through the grave or through the trumpet, everybody's going to get a finally. So let's start that as our foundation. Now let's go to verse 22. Finally, what, what we got? We got a rich man and Lazarus. Finally, the poor man died. He has his finally moment. And he was carried by the angels to be with Abraham. So this poor guy who's had dogs licking his sores, he has his finally moment, the breath of life. He leaves his body. He becomes a corpse. And here comes angels to carry his soul to Abraham's side. The old version of English says Abraham's bosom. So what's the significance of Abraham? Why is he going to see Abraham? Well, if you went to the Jerusalem series here, you understand that the key to being in the children of God is you've got to become an Isaac. And to become an Isaac, you have connected yourself to Abraham. And Abraham is the promise, the covenant, right? The children of God. The rich man also died. So here both characters are now dead. And he was buried and his soul, notice the wording, his soul went to the place of the dead. There in torment, he saw Abraham in a far distance with Lazarus at Abraham's side. So let's go through this. I want to break it down. It looks like Lazarus, the beggar, dies first. His finally moment comes first. But then the rich man had a finally moment. He also died, and notice he was buried. Jesus doesn't say that Lazarus was buried. Maybe his body was just thrown into the dump. I don't know. Jesus does say that the rich man was buried, and I bet it was a beautiful funeral. You know what I've noticed in my lifetime? I've done a lot of funerals. Rich people have larger funerals than poor people. Do you notice? So let's stop and focus on a detail here. The bodies of both men have been disposed of. 
They have both experienced physical death. They have both had a finally moment. Their physical life, the breath of life, has ended in these men, both of them. But the story, this is why it's important, doesn't end here. Jesus keeps going. It isn't stopping. It keeps going into the afterlife. Lazarus was carried by angels to be with Abraham. Abraham's bosom, Abraham's side, let's call it paradise. Lazarus's soul was carried to Abraham. So when I say Lazarus, when Jesus says Lazarus was carried by angels, do you think they're carrying a corpse to angels? Well, that corpse is still somewhere on the earth. Lazarus was carried by angels. His soul was carried by angels to Abraham's side. Not his finally deceased empty tent, his body. I described, and let me just pause for a moment. I remember it wasn't very long ago. I was visiting a guy who was on hospice and he was on a countdown. He didn't have many days left to live. And I took the time to describe to him what I just described to you, that when he died, when he breathed that last breath out, angels, Jesus said angels came and carried his soul to paradise. And when I said that to that guy on hospice, that guy just got the biggest grin on his face and I just sat there and looked at him. And I grinned back. Think of the moment. Because it doesn't say angel. It says angels, plural. Plural. So God dispatches in this story, plural. More than one angel to carry Lazarus's soul to Abraham's bosom, Abraham's side to paradise. Lazarus's soul, not his tent, not his body, has been carried to Abraham. This is big. Which one do you think Lazarus is? The body that might possibly be laying in a dump somewhere or the soul that was carried to Abraham's side? Do we have two Lazaruses? Do we have a Lazarus in the landfill? Or do we have a Lazarus in Abraham's bosom called paradise? We only have one Lazarus. And Lazarus is not a tent. Lazarus is a soul. So let's come to that conclusion. So the rich man's soul is also carried away. Let that sink in. The rich, it doesn't matter whether you're rich or the poor or you're the beggar. or The soul is going somewhere. The rich man's soul is also carried away, but Jesus doesn't mention angelic escorts in this finally moment. I guess somebody, some power had to take him somewhere. The rich, but, but I can tell you this, I don't think it was a joyful transfer. But there is a power that's moving the soul of the rich man to somewhere. The rich man's soul travels to the place of the dead. What a contrast. These two men are men of extreme contrast, rich, rich versus poor, and now Abraham's paradise versus the place of the dead. They both had life, they both had years, and they both had a finally. Do you believe in finally? Do you believe in the afterlife? A physical place. And let's make this point. We're talking about a physical place. 
not a dream world. Y'all ever had a dream where it seems so real and you wake up and it, it disappears? We're not talking about this kind of a place. A physical place, a distant shoreline that is approaching every one of us at a speed that we probably cannot comprehend. Where do you think Abraham is today? What is this place of his home today? Where is Abraham right now? These are important questions. If you're a Christian and you cannot answer these questions, something is wrong in your foundation. Where is Abraham? And, and the angels carried the Lazarus' soul to be with Abraham. Well, where's Abraham? Lazarus is with Abraham. The rich man is in torment in the place of the dead. Why is Jesus telling this story? Because he knows what happens when you stop breathing. He knows. And he doesn't want you to not know. He wants you and I to know what happens when you stop breathing. Are they both conscious? All right, let's get detailed. Do they have some type of a physical body in this new place? In a physical place? Do you want to know? Are you sure? Now, here's why I say that. Years ago, I came up with this scene in my own mind. I'm convinced that if any of us was given the opportunity to take five seconds, and there was a fence, and on the other side of that fence was heaven, and on the other side of this fence was hell, and both of the fences had a knot hole, and you were allowed to just five seconds in each fence to just go on the knot hole and look into hell and take the knot hole and look into heaven. If you just had five seconds to look through the knot hole to see what hell is and what heaven is, do you think it would change your life forever? This is the knot hole. This is it. Jesus is describing to us in great detail, and I'm going to show you in a moment, probably more detail than you've ever noticed in your lifetime. What's on the other side of the wall? What is the place of the dead? The NIV calls it, uh, translates the word to hell. NLT says place of the dead. Uh, New American Standard calls it Hades. The rich man, is the rich man conscious in Hades? Does he have a body in Hades, in the place of the dead? If he's got a body, it's not the body that they buried in the graveyard, because you could dig that up, it's still there. He obviously feels pain, because Jesus says he's in torment. If he didn't feel pain, how could he be in torment? He obviously can see. Are you with me? What's through the knot hole? He obviously can see because he sees Lazarus at Abraham's side. But they are far away. His soul is in Hades, the place of the dead. But his body, his corpse, is still in the ground on planet Earth in a graveyard. Do you believe in an afterlife? Do you want to keep, do you, do you want to look through the knot hole? Or some people at this point would say, I'm really not very pleased with this whole knot hole thing. I wish we would talk about something else. The rich man also has a voice. It's, I'm doing all this to show you, does he have a body? Is he some 
spirit ghost? Because a lot of people have this idea that that's through the knot hole. He has a voice. So let's, let's summarize. He feels pain. He can see. He speaks in this afterlife because he cries out. Verse 24, the rich man shouted, Father Abraham, have some pity. Send Lazarus over here to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. I am in anguish in these flames. The rich man has a new or different body covering his soul. It's clear. He has a new or a different, I don't know, body covering his soul in this afterlife. The rich man really isn't dead in this place of the dead. Not like you and I know dead, right? He's, at least it's not an unconscious. We think of dead as an unconscious existence. But this is not an unconscious of existence, is it? It's not. The rich man is conscious, conscious, and he is in torment, and he is crying out in the afterlife. It's horrible. It's horrible. The thought is horrible. The rich man experiences suffering, pain, anguish in this afterlife. And yes, it is described by Jesus as flames of fire. It's a nightmare. What a contrast with these two guys. It sounds like this great reversal. This idea that the top are going to go to the bottom and the bottom are going to go to the top. That in the end, whatever you've had on earth, you've, you've climbed this ladder on earth to try to get to the top, only to find that at the top, what God does is just, he just switches it over. He just turns the whole thing upside down. It's this great reversal, trading places. The rich man goes to the bottom, hail, and the poor beggar goes to paradise, to the top. So, stop for a moment. Do you remember that other rich man story? It, and when I was a kid growing up, preachers called it the rich young ruler, okay? Maybe some of you remember. Um, Jesus told him, um, he came to Jesus and asked, what do I need to do to have eternal life? And Jesus says, obey the commandments. And the guy says, I've obeyed all the commandments. And Jesus loved him. The Bible says, and Jesus loved him. He, he loved him, which I love you enough to tell you the truth. And what did he tell him? What are you telling? Go sell everything you have and give it to the poor. You'll have treasure in heaven. And what did the guy do? He said he walked away sorrowful because he had great wealth. He weighed the cost and he said it's too expensive to follow you. So he turned and walked away sorrowful. That rich man thought heaven was too expensive. It, it, so he went away very sad. So tonight, as we go into this parable, what is the value of your soul? What would you give in exchange for your soul? Would you trade first here now for last in the afterlife? Not if you could look through that knothole one time. Do you believe there is an afterlife? Do you want me to keep going or stop? I'm going to keep going anyway, but it's an interesting question. The rich man has cried out to far away Abraham. Okay, so will Abraham answer him in Jesus' story? And by the way, where is Abraham? It's surely not the place of the dead. The angels have carried Lazarus' soul to paradise. Abraham is in paradise. And I want you to visualize, because it helps me, I want you to visualize Abraham in what I, the Genesis describes as the Garden of Eden, because I'm convinced that's kind of what things are going to look like. 
in this perfect created order. And Abraham's there. And now Lazarus is next to him. How awesome is the thought that your soul won't have to travel to this third heaven alone. And when I say third heaven, it goes back to the apostle Paul when he, when he said that I experienced the third heaven, that I, I, whether I was in my body or out of my body, I don't know, but I saw things that God wouldn't let me talk about this third heaven. You know what Lazarus, how did he get to the third heaven? How did he get to Abraham's bosom? Angels carried him. You don't have to get there and say, Oh no, where's the GPS? You know, how do you get there? You know, they're going to come get you. I don't know about you, but I, th the idea, the idea that when, when I close my eyes in death, when, I, when that breath goes out of me, in that second, in that millisecond, that God will dispatch angels and they will take hold of my soul and they will escort me into paradise. Now listen, if this is a Walt Disney story to you, something's wrong. If this is your life, then you get it. You have ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. This is real. This is not make-believe. This is real. How will Abraham respond from paradise? Remember, Jesus is telling this story so that you and I don't have to guess about the afterlife. Let's go to verse 25. Abraham said to him, Son, remember that during your lifetime you had everything you wanted, and Lazarus, he had nothing. So now he is here being comforted and you are in anguish. And besides, there's a great chasm, a great gulf separating us. No one can cross over to you from here and no one can cross over to, from us, to us from there. Notice the request again. What's the request that he's responding to? Father Abraham, have some pity and send Lazarus. As we, as we consider Abraham's answer, he's answering what? Have some pity. Send Lazarus. Father Abraham. Sounds Jewish, doesn't it? Father Abraham. Abraham responds by calling him son. Right? You know what the problem? And again, if you've came to this Jerusalem series, you'll get this next statement. Abraham had other sons beside Isaac. Do you see? Ishmael, for example, would not be a child of the promise. But listen, and it's important. Ishmael, or let's say Muslims in general today, they can become Isaacs through Christ. But you will have to come to Christ to become an Isaac. Anybody can come become an Isaac through Christ. And he said, he calls him son. The problem, how did the son of Abraham end up in the place of the dead? He's not an Isaac. Isaac is called the child of the promise through which the covenant would come. Have some pity on me. Abraham reveals the finality of that which comes after the finally. The rich man lived his life in luxury, but that's not. This is really important. Everybody listen carefully. I'm afraid a lot of people read this and get this part wrong. The rich man lived his life in luxury, but that is not what sent him to Hades. That is not what sent him to the place of the dead. Lazarus lived his life in poverty, but that is not why he is in paradise. 
Do you think that there's an automatic, hey, if I'm poor, I go to heaven. If I'm rich, I go to hell. You think that's it? That is not it. That is not it. This story is not about how much you had or how much you didn't have. That's not what sent them to these two different locations. It's about idols and open hands. It's about idols and open hands. The rich man in the story was obviously into worshiping an idol. He, his trust was not in God. If his trust was in God, he would not go to the place of the dead. His trust was in some substitute God, something that could not save him, whether it was money or riches or power or political or who. None of those things could save you from that last moment. It's called idolatry. But the point is, just because you're rich doesn't mean that you are in idolatry. You know, God made King David wealthy. He made Solomon wealthy. It's not just the wealth that makes you lost. What's the difference? If you can hold wealth with an open hand, it's probably not your idol. When I say open hand, that you understand that, yes, I have this wealth from God. But I never try to do this to it. I never try to hold on to it. I just hold it with an open hand. So just, just hold it like this. Lord, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I don't ever try to grip it. Don't ever try to get your hands on that where you can't let it go. The moment you're starting to your fingers collapse around it, be careful. It becomes your idol. In reality, these two people had actually traded places. The great reversal is real. The great reversal, listen, is permanent. Abraham replies, it's too late. How heavy is that? It's too late. It's too late. You lived your life and you made your choices in this life. This is the afterlife now. Please, I want water to quench my thirst and comfort my anguish. It's too late. And there's a great chasm, a gulf, a divide between us, and it's uncrossable from either side. The afterlife, listen, a lot of people, even in church, still struggle with this. The afterlife is permanent. And the afterlife assignment, there is no court of appeals. Do you believe in an afterlife? Do you believe it's permanent and unchangeable? Do you want me to continue through this not hope? Because I agree with you. It is a sobering story from Jesus. Do you know, right now, let's pause before I get into this last part. Do you know anybody that you know for a fact left unchanged? They are going to the place of the dead. Because I do. I'm not their judge. I don't sit there and judge them. But the reality is they are lost. They, they don't have any faith in Christ. And if the gospel is true, then without Christ, everyone goes to the place of the dead. Right? So it's not just a sobering thought for me personally. It's a sobering thought for me, for the people that I know that they have no idea that which is indirectly in front of them. And thus the urgency of the gospel. Somebody has to tell them. How will the rich man respond to this hopeless condition in the place of the dead? This is the most interesting part of the story to me. 
Then the rich man said, please, Father Abraham, at least send him, send Lazarus, to my father's home. For I have five brothers, and I want him, Lazarus, to warn them, my brothers, so they don't end up in this place of torment. I wonder if this is the first time in the rich man's life that he's thought about somebody besides himself. But it's too late. Someone must warn my family. Someone must tell them of this place of the dead. I want you to stop for a moment and notice something. The rich man has memory. Oh, this really touched me. I'd never thought about this until not too long ago. He has memory in the place of the dead. He is aware of his past. He is aware of his present. And he is aware of his future. He is fully cognizant in this body, in his person, in the place of the dead. He has a body that experiences thirst and pain. He can see, he can speak, he can hear. He is fully aware of his situation and his torment. He says, I have five brothers and I don't want them to join me in this place of torment. Somebody's got to warn them, send Lazarus to warn them about this place of torment. Then how will the father Abraham respond to that request? Verse 29. But Abraham said, Moses and the prophets have warned them. Do you have ears to hear? I told you this is the most important part in the story. Somebody's go warn them. Abraham said, Moses and the prophets have warned them. Your brothers can read what they wrote. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians, 6. The warning has already been given. The knot hole in the fence is this. This is it. And it's, you can spend more than five seconds looking at it. You can look through it all you want to, as hard as it is. Your brothers can read what they wrote. The rich man replied, no, 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 Father Abraham. But if someone is sent to them from the dead... Do you, do, you, do you get it? Who's Jesus? Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. If somebody were to come from the dead and tell you about hell, you'd believe it, right? What is this story? He's one that rose from the dead, right? If someone rose from the dead, they will repent of their sins and turn to God. But Abraham said, if they won't listen to Moses, if they won't listen to the Old Testament, they won't listen even if someone rises from the dead. Y'all are working on me tonight. <laughs> if they won't listen to the Old Testament, will they listen to the New Testament? You would think if Lazarus is dead and comes back to life and told the story about hell, you would listen. Abraham said, no, you won't, because Jesus will be the one who rises from the dead to tell you about hell, and you won't listen to him either. There you go. Do you see the power of the Word of God in that story? If you won't believe the words from the book, 
They won't believe the one who is risen from the dead, the one recorded in the book. All right, number 27. Let's switch gears. The persistent widow. And a couple of weeks ago, we talked about a parable called uh, uh, a friend, not a fried. It says a fried at midnight. I left off the end there. I just now noticed that someone got fried at midnight. I don't remember that parable. It's comparable to a friend coming at midnight. So let me refresh your memory. Jesus tells a parable of, of a friend that comes at midnight, and he says, I need three loaves of bread. But they were already in bed, and the house was all shut up, and, and their deep fryer was shut down for the day. <laughs> so anyway, he, he says, I need three loaves of bread. And the persistence, the shameless persistence of the person got the guy out of bed. That was the parable. Well, this one really sounds a whole lot like that one, but a little different flavor. Luke 18, 1. One day, Jesus told his disciples a story to show that they should always pray and never give up. There was a judge in a certain city, and he said, who neither feared God nor cared about people. Not a very good judge, is he? A widow of that city came to him repeatedly, saying, give me justice in this dispute with my enemy. The judge ignored her for a while, Jesus is telling this story. It's kind of a crazy story, you think, for Jesus to be telling. This is this not very good judge. He's, he's being pestered by this woman for justice. And he, she's, he's ignoring her for a while. But finally, he says to himself, I don't fear God or care about people. But this woman is driving me crazy. <laughs> I'm going to see that she gets justice because... She is wearing me out with her constant request. And then the Lord said, learn a lesson from this unjust judge. So do we have ears to hear? Can you see it? What's the lesson? Learn a lesson from this unjust judge. Even he rendered a just decision in the end. Even he, even his unrighteous self, did the right thing in the end because he, the, the, the woman never stopped asking. Do you have ears to hear? So don't think God will surely, uh, don't you think God will surely give you justice, give justice to his chosen people who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them, us, off? I tell you, he will grant justice to them quickly. But when the Son of Man returns, how many will he find on earth who have faith? That last part seems almost out of context, but I assure you it's not. What's the ears to hear? Pray and never give up. Remember a few weeks ago, that was the topic too. Pray and never give up. How many people, how many people have prayed for something uh, that's important, but you give up too quick. You have the idea that, well, if he was going to answer, he'd answered by now. We're, did you get that from the Bible? No, you got that from you. What would you get from the Bible? Never stop asking. 
He wants you to never stop asking. So don't stop asking. If it's important, just keep asking. Uh, I shared a few weeks ago, there's a scripture in Isaiah. It's in 62. It was years ago. I was studying the Old Testament in Isaiah 62. It says, I've appointed a watchman on the wall. And this watchman says, um, may I not rest nor give you rest until you have made Jerusalem and her king the praise of the whole earth. May I not rest and give you no rest. In Isaiah, God asked, and, and I took that very personal, and I'm convinced that it was the Holy Spirit, saying that I should have a regular daily prayer, and, and I do, and here's what it looks like. Lord, may I not rest, and may I give you no rest, may I not stop praying, until you have made Jerusalem and her king, his name is Jesus, the praise of the whole earth. That's in Isaiah 62. It's not just a New Testament teaching. It's an Old Testament teaching. Pray and never give up. Do we really believe God is the God of justice? The story of Jesus reveals that even an unjust judge will give justice if he is pressed long enough. It says, so don't you think God will surely give justice to his chosen people who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? And how many people in the church, if you read that sentence and you were honest, your answer would be, no. Don't you think? No, no I don't think he will. I don't think he'll answer me. I don't think he No, I don't think he's listening. Don't, don't go there. You're, you're the one in that scene. If your answer is no to that, and let me, let me make, don't you think God will surely give justice? No. Then, then you made that up. That, that's your conclusion. That's not his conclusion. Then Jesus does something. Jesus uses the word quickly, followed by a very unique question with eternal implications. It says that when, that he will give, Jesus is not the unjust judge. He is the just judge. He is the righteous judge. And he says that judge isn't in a hurry. She had to pester him to get justice. He says, I will do it quickly. Now, now quickly to God may not be quickly to you or I, but it'll be quickly in his book. He calls it quickly. And then he does something. And I think this has got an end time significance. He says this, but when the Son of Man returns, how many will he find on the earth who have faith. I said a moment ago, does that kind of look out of context? Because it kind of looks like, what? What did that have to do with the parable? But it's not out of context. This parable reveals the issue of what? Endurance and perseverance. Everybody stay with me, because, see, I think this is so powerful. And if you don't have ears to hear, you're never going to get this part, because it, 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 you got to be, really be watching for this one. What is the issue of the pray and never give up? Persistence and endurance, persistence and endurance, persistence and endurance, persistence and endurance. And what is his last statement? When the Son of Man comes, will there still be Christians in persistence and endurance? What is persistence and endurance? It's not just your prayer life, it's your faith. Will you still be in the faith when I come? Why? Why do you think that's a big deal? Will you persevere in prayer 
and will you persevere in faith? Uh, several weeks ago, I did a sermon series about these, these D's, these, uh, I pray, Lord, that while I wait, I would not be deceived, distracted, dissuaded, discouraged, or disheartened. Why? One of the reasons that that sermon series came was because of this whole idea that when the Son of Man returns, will he find faith on the earth? Because he says, the Bible says very clearly in Paul's letter to the Thessalonians that there will be a great falling away before Jesus comes. That They won't be in perseverance and they won't be in endurance. They will be fallen away. They will have fallen from the truth. They were deceived and they were distracted and they were dissuaded and they were discouraged and they were disheartened. When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Now, I'm going to tell you, when I pray, I pray regularly this prayer too, Lord, that when you come, you will find faith in me. You will find that faith in Nineveh, in this church. It's very personal for me. How many will Jesus find enduring and persevering when he comes? Will you be on the list? Do you see what he's doing? He's connecting the faithfulness of enduring prayer to the faithfulness of enduring faith. They're the same. Because if you really believed he's faithful judge and he's listening to you while you pray, you'll keep praying. You know what the danger is? When you stop praying, what are you saying to him? When you stop praying, what are you saying to him? Either I don't think you're up for this, or I don't think you listen to me, or I don't think you're a faithful, just judge. What are you saying? Really? You want to say that to him? When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Why do I make it such a big deal out of that? Here's why. I am firmly convinced that we are in the very last hours of the last days before the return of Christ. And I am firmly convinced that from this point forward, it's going to get very, very difficult to remain in the faith. And I think that one of the main responsibilities for the church of the last days is to prepare people to stand firm in the faith. That's why this parable is so powerful. Mark 13, 12, not just my opinion, Jesus says this, a brother in the last days, a brother will betray his brother to death. A father will betray his own child. Children will, re will rebel against their parents and cause them to be killed. And everyone will hate you because you are my followers. But the one who endures to the end, do you see it? will be saved. How will you be saved? In this story of the end times before the return of Christ, how will you be saved? Faithful endurance. When the Son of Man returns, will he find faith on the earth? May he find it in me. May he find it in us. The last one for tonight. A parable, I call it number 28. 28 has no significance other than just I'm going through 35 of them. The Pharisee and the tax collector. And we're not going to fry either one of these, okay? These will be just regular. The Pharisee and the tax collector. Luke 18, 9. Then Jesus told this story to some who had great confidence in their own righteousness. Let that sink in for a moment. Great confidence in me. Great confidence in my own righteousness and scorned everybody else. That's the story. Two men went to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other was a despised tax collector. 
He worked for the IRS and nobody likes those guys. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed this prayer. I thank you, God, that I am not a sinner like everyone else. For I don't cheat, I don't sin, I don't commit adultery, and I'm certainly not like that tax collector. I don't smoke, drink, or chew, or run with those who do. I actually put that in there. That's not real. He says, I fast twice a week, and I give you a tenth of my income. But the tax collector stood at a distance and dared not even lift his eyes to heaven as he prayed. Instead, he beat his chest in sorrow, saying, Oh, God, be merciful to me. I am a sinner. Now, before I read the last part, why is Jesus telling this story? Why? You think it's important? I tell you, Jesus, I tell you, this sinner, not the Pharisee, this tax collector, returned home justified before God. Do you know what justified means? Justified, this tax collector went home that day justified before God. Not, not the Pharisee, justified before God. What, what does it mean? To be right with God. Which one is right with God? That's what justified means. To be made right with God. What made him right? Have mercy on me, a sinner. Have mercy on me, I'm a sinner. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Christianity is the opposite of the world's way of self-promotion. Let me, let me give you a, an example of, of what I mean by that. In Christianity, what? You got to go down to get up. Do you think that's how it works in the world? You, you go out into the business world, you go down to get up. Do you get promoted in the business world by humility? No, that works, is it? But in Christianity, you go down to get up. Up is down and down is up and right is left and left is right. We're the opposites. Death is life and life is death. You see what we are? That's why the world looks at us like we're weird. Surrender is victory. And victory is surrender. None of that applies in the world. None of it. The tax collector is an unlikely candidate to get it. But he's the one that gets it in Jesus' story. Now, let's be, let's be real here. The, why were the tax collectors so hated? Because they were Jews that the Romans used to get money out of the Jewish people. In other words, they were considered traitors to the Jewish people. They hated them. They despised them. Because they feel like they, they denied their Jewish roots by joining Rome to get Rome money. They hated them. And this tax collector is the most unlikely candidate to be in Jesus' story, but he gets it. This is the danger, church, listen. This is the danger of arrogance created through religious ritual. Self-righteousness is destructive. 
Let me explain what I mean by that. Arrogance created through religious ritual. I am righteous because I go to church. It's an arrogance that is created by religious ritual because I did something. There is no person here, including me, that is righteous because I did something. It's not possible. There is no something I can do to make me righteous. It's not you might as well just get over it because there is no such something. The only righteousness you and I could ever have is the righteousness of Christ, which means that I become nothing so that he might become the something in me. But then it isn't me that's righteous. It is Christ in me that is righteous. You see the difference? There's such a danger. Is it in the church? Yes. Does the church look down on other people who are not in the church sometimes? Yes. Does the church, I go to church, you don't go to church, you must be rotten. It's, they don't, you don't ever say that, but that's, that's what it looks like. It's that somehow or another I have this righteousness. Well, Jesus just total train wrecks that idea. Because who's the Pharisee in the story? Who is the Pharisee? The most righteous religious guy in Judaism is a Pharisee. He knows everything about the Old Testament. He knows everything about the law of Moses and all the rituals and rules. He knows it all. And yet he says, I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm glad I'm not like these rotten people. Is, is he justified with God? He is unjustified. So what does God want? So, so, okay, okay, you got my attention. What does he want from me? What does he want? This is what he wants. I want to read Psalms 51, just a couple of verses. This is the famous psalm of repentance given by King David. And let me kind of give you a little context. King David had, had lied about an adulterous affair with Bathsheba, even had Bathsheba's husband uh, killed, put to death in the war. So, so it's horrible. But David doesn't think anybody knows. And then Nathan comes to David and said, you're the man. God knows. And he, he sent me to tell you, you, you are the man and your, your sin has found you out. And David is crushed in that moment. So what does God want? What does God want? Uh, rationalization? Yeah, but you don't know how pretty she was. Does he want rationalization? But you don't know. You know, I'm just a man. You know, her husband wasn't being very nice to her. Uh, he doesn't need any rationalization. You know what he wants? This is what he wants. Psalm 51. You do not desire a sacrifice or I would offer one. He's been caught red-handed. You do not desire a sacrifice or I would offer one. You do not want a burnt offering. The sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken and repentant heart, O oh God. And if you want to read the rest of that, go read Psalms 51. David is broken before God because he knows that his righteousness is dirty rags. I am broken. And I, you could go and offer a sacrifice, but God doesn't want a sacrifice. God wants you repentant. He wants your spirit broken and humbled that you can't get any further down and cry out to him for mercy. Have mercy on me, Lord. I am a sinner. That's what he wants. He says, now I can use you. 
Now you are justified in my presence. I can use you now. Your arrogance is gone. Your brokenness makes you usable. Isaiah 66 is the similar story. This is what the Lord says. Heaven is my throne. The earth is my footstool. Could you build me a temple as good as that? Could you build me such a resting place? My hands have made both heaven and earth. They are everything in, they are everything, they and everything in them are mine. I, the Lord, have spoken. I will bless those who have a humble and contrite hearts who tremble at my word who tremble at me, they're the ones. Do you tremble at him when you're saying, I'm glad I'm not like everybody else? No, you tremble at his word when you, you see, I am unworthy to be your servant, and you're as low as human gets. Today, people fear everything except God. You know, we live in a culture that is totally consumed with how somebody else might be offended. Everybody's terrified at somebody being offended. Everybody, you're worried about offending everybody except the one that it matters, God. And there's something in the scriptures that's clear. When a people lose their fear of God, they will naturally lose their fear of sin. Because you don't fear, ready? Finally. You don't fear finally because you don't fear God. But I can tell you this, whether you believe it or not, the finally moment is coming and you will meet him in that moment. Everybody's going to meet him. You're going to stand before him and give an account for what you have done with that which you have received. And the fear of God, what does he say? I will bless those who have humble and contrite hearts, broken hearts, who tremble at my word. Who tremble. Who read the story of the rich man and Lazarus and tremble. You know what the story of the rich man and Lazarus ought to do to you? What it ought to do? It makes me afraid. Because when I read that story on top of this religious guy, I'm afraid. Because that religious guy in this third parable thought he was justified before God. And he is unjustified before God. He's not justified. It makes me afraid. Luke 12, verse 4. Jesus says, dear friends, don't be afraid of those who want to kill your body. They cannot do any more to you after they kill your body. But I tell you whom to fear, fear God. Church, fear God who has the power to kill you and then throw you into hell. Yes, he's the one to fear. Fear God. This parable of Jesus is so powerful and revealing to me that I have um, made this tax collector statement a part, again, my daily prayers. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Give me strength for this journey. Lord, have mercy. I acknowledge it. Just go on and say it. I Give mercy on me, a sinner. Give me strength for this journey. And yes, I do tremble at his word. Let me wrap this up with this. A Pew Research poll published in 2015 found that 72% of Americans believe in heaven and only 58% believe in hell. Isn't it good to not believe in hell? I mean, it won't change its reality. You know what the worst part is? That was 2015, and those are declining. 
which means fewer and fewer Americans believe in heaven and fewer and fewer Americans believe in hell. Do you think not believing in heaven and hell will change heaven and hell? Do you, do you think that will make any difference to whether or not you're going to experience one or the other in your finally moment? I guess there's another option. You don't believe in either. Do you know it's becoming a popular doctrine? Even in the church? A popular doctrine. There's no heaven, there's no hell. Some people believe there's no promised land called heaven, just a dark, unconscious, non-existent grave. But the problem with that is Jesus declares an afterlife. And it would be a terrible, horrible mistake to deny its reality. Worldwide, two, pe worldwide, two people die every second. Think about it. 104 people die every minute. 6,250 people die every hour. 150,000 people die every day. And all of them go to either heaven or hell. 150,000 people a day. There is an afterlife and it would be a terrible, horrible mistake to deny its reality. Do you understand? That's why Jesus came. To give us the resurrection into the afterlife. Jesus' bodily resurrection from the grave is proof of the afterlife. It's proof. The Bible clearly states that our identity, our person, is not this tent. It is our soul, not our physical body. And I tell you tonight, your soul is eternal. God has breathed the breath of life into your soul, and He has pushed you into eternity. Your life is His breath. He has created you, and He pushed you into eternity. The only question tonight is where will you be in eternity? You will be in the place of the dead or in the place of Abraham. And everybody will be in one of the two. Where does the soul go when a person dies? And when do we get this resurrected eternal body? Jesus has already made it clear. And the question is this, and when the Son of Man returns, will he find faith? on the earth. Father, thank you for your word. May we have ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you all.